you Sunday. I mean, it's okay, you can applaud, it's totally fine. I won't be offended. Thank you. Okay, I don't want to force it. That was, that was awkward. Hey, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the Associate Adult Ministries Director here, which literally means I help out with house churches. Um, so, hey, uh, where are my house church leaders at? I want to celebrate you guys. Thank you uh, for who you are, what you do. Um, house churches are an amazing way. We have leaders all across the city that uh, open up their homes to cultivate spaces of awakening and hospitality, and we're so grateful for you guys. Um, but hey, I am back from paternity leave, and I want to introduce you, if that's okay, to our baby boy, Hoxton. I have a picture uh, of Rosie, our oldest daughter, who's 18 months old, holding Hoxton. Oh, are the slides not working? Oh, good. Whew, okay. Aw, aw. So uh, that's Hoxton. He's, he's there in the front row. Um, and I just want to say, man, I love being a dad. It's amazing. Uh, Rosie is so helpful. She loves to uh, wake Hoxton up from his naps, try to unswaddle him at inopportune moments, stick the pacifier in his mouth. Um, super helpful, but we love them. She's doing great. You can take that off because I could just talk about my kids all, all service long, and maybe that's what uh, some of you would like. But hey, we have a message, okay, from the book of Haggai, if you want to turn there. And this message is about hope. Someone say hope. And so I was thinking about, I want to tell you a story, uh, really about one of the most hopeless times in my life, and that was middle school. Can anyone relate? Middle school was just a sad, awkward time. Um, it gets better, but uh, in middle school, I went to a youth group that kind of uh, didn't really outgrow the 90s, if you know what I mean. So we did a lot of things that were kind of illegal, um, and I could probably sue them if I wanted to. And if you didn't go to a youth group that was kind of stuck in the 90s, that probably makes no sense to you. But um, these were scary places back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we uh, went to this snow camp uh, up in Tahoe. So I grew up in California. And so we're going to like an actual snow camp, okay? Not like those like ice crystal things you guys get down here, okay? It was like an actual snow in the Sierra Nevada. And, uh, and all weekend long, we're doing this competition, okay, right? Teams are competing against one another. And, uh, and, and so we get to the end of the weekend, and they take all of us, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, into this big open snow field, okay? So the snow is like up to our thighs, and we're all dressed kind of like Ralphie's little brother from A Christmas Story, right? And we're like trudging our way into the field, the snow's up to our thighs, and the youth pastor gets on his megaphone, and he says, the last competition of the weekend is going to be an all-out battle. There are no rules. The last person standing wins it for their entire team. When I woke up in the hospital the next day, no, I'm totally kidding. That was a joke. I just couldn't resist saying that. But uh, what started to happen is, you know, we're dressed like Ralphie's little brother from the Christmas story. So we're just kind of like throwing really padded punches at each other. And you lose by sinking slowly into the snow and you had to take yourself out. Um, but what started to happen is the strategy, and I, by the way, was not the one that figured out the strategy. Okay, seventh grade Ryan was one of the first ones out. So I was able to watch the strategy safely from the sidelines was the eighth graders would climb up on top of the big rocks and body slam people into the snow, okay? 
And that's a silly story, but I, I tell it because I think it illustrates both, uh, number one, what I looked like as a seventh grader. I just wanted you to get to know me a little bit more so we can be friends, okay? But number two is I think it illustrates a little bit of what I want to talk about this morning, a definition of hope, is that in the middle of the battle, the key to winning was to look up. And when we talk about hope this morning, um, the key to hope is when life feels like a battle, we have to get our eyes off of what's going on around us and look up and reconnect with the story that God is writing in our lives. And I don't know if anyone's in the room this morning or watching online that just feels like, man, life is one punch after another, I, I'm praying that we can hear the tender invitation of the Holy Spirit this morning to have hope again, to lift our eyes. Haggai chapter two, verse nine says it this way, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Can we just pray real quick as we open God's word? We thank you, Lord, for hope this morning. God, we just posture our hearts before you. I pray this morning for the one who feels maybe a bit disillusioned, feels maybe a bit cynical, feels like their heart is hard from the weariness of the battle. Lord, I pray for a fresh wave of hope this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen, amen. Well, hey, we're in the Book of the Twelve. It's a series going through all the minor uh, prophets and uh, we're actually going through the series, if you don't know, with all the Grace family of churches. So there's, I think it's 11 other churches that are going through this together. Uh, and really, the reason why we picked the Minor Prophets uh, is because we just think they speak so well to this cultural moment we find ourselves in, this moment we feel like we're in as a church, because really the message of the Minor Prophets is bringing together love for God and love for neighbor. Right, doesn't Jesus say that? He says, this is this, the law and the prophets summed up that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the, the minor prophets bring together these ideas of worship, love for God, and justice, love for neighbor. And to say you can't have one without the other. And I don't know about you, I think there's kind of a temptation today to say, hey, those are like the, the worship and prayer churches and people, and those are like the justice churches and people. But guys, the message of the Minor Prophets is that it's not an either or, it's a both and. You can't have worship without justice. You can't have justice without worship. And so um, we want to ask, what do these books have to say to us in the Grace family? So we're going to look at Haggai this morning. Chapter one says this. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And then the word of the Lord came by the prophet of Haggai, saying, Dot, dot, dot. So here's what we have to do. There's a lot of names there, and we have to do a little history lesson, okay? Is that okay? Uh, if that phrase is triggering to you because of negative experiences, feel free to step out for a second. If college is like, you don't want to think about that over the summer. Um, but hey, history lesson, and, and I want to do this. I, I just think it's so important because this book is a record of God's action in human history. 
In other words, like this book that we pledge to follow as followers of Jesus isn't just some abstract book of spiritual truths. It's a record of a real God intervening at real times in real situations with real people. And maybe that can give us hope that God could intervene in our circumstances today. But the other reason is we talk a lot in Grace Midtown about how we hold this book and, and we hold it. A lot of theologians talk about it kind of like a five-act play. And we have the first four acts written. There's creation, there's a crisis, there's a covenant God makes with his people, then there's the cross of Jesus. Uh, and then we live in the fifth act of the church. And we have to know the first four acts because friends, we have a role to play in the fifth act with the Holy Spirit and with each other. And so looking at the story is so important so we know what our assignment is today. And so Jumping in, we're going to jump in in 930 BCE, and I've got some beautiful graphics made by our amazing staff member, Esther. Uh, but in 930 BCE, Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, splits the kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, if you know, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and 10 of them go up north to Israel, and then two, Judah and Benjamin, go to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And so poor Benjamin kind of gets forgotten, and we only remember uh, Judah. That's kind of what happens to younger, younger siblings, and I'm an oldest, so I feel a little bit a little biased on that regard. But uh, So these are the prophets that come and speak to the northern kingdom. Elijah, Amos, Jonah, and Hosea are northern kingdom prophets. And so if you read those books or read about Elijah in 2 Kings, uh, when they're giving prophetic declarations, they'll always say, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, because they're speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom prophets are Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, and they come and they speak to the southern kingdom of Judah. And then something uh, terrible happens in 722, and it is the Assyrians come, and there's actually two exiles recorded in the Old Testament. And the first one happens in 722 when Assyria comes and takes the 10 tribes of Israel away and into the Assyrian kingdoms around them. And a couple things happen that kind of have relevance for the rest of the story. And it's that, uh, number one, we've kind of lost track of those 10 tribes. That's why you don't hear about Simeonites and Reubenites or any of those other of the 12 tribes after this point because they kind of intermarry and get lost within the Assyrian empire. And then what happens though is some Assyrians move into Israel and intermarry with the Israelites who are there and form kind of a new group of people called the Samaritans. And so that's why whenever Jesus travels north, he has encounters with people like the Samaritan woman at the well uh, or like the good Samaritan, which he doesn't actually encounter, but tells a story about. So um, that's the Assyrian exile. And then the southern kingdom prophets start to warn. Once again, it's Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk start to warn the southern kingdom, hey, something really bad is going to happen. If we don't get back to loving God and loving neighbor, if we don't get back to worship and justice, our fate is going to be the same as the northern kingdom, and we're going to get exiled. And sure enough, in 586, BCE, the Babylonians come and take away um, the southern kingdom. And so that's, that's what the book of Jeremiah as a prophet speaking into that is about, Ezekiel. And then I put Daniel in parentheses because Daniel is actually written within the Babylonian exile. And so, and what happens is, I mean, this is, I, I don't want us to get kind of even lost in the history of this. This is a tragic moment. 
where people are marched away, put into enslavement in chains, ripped from their home. I mean, can you imagine being ripped from your home, ripped from family members, separated, taken away into a foreign land? And more than that, the Babylonians destroy the temple. And they steal the Ark of the Covenant, which is that chest that contains the Ten Commandments in it. And we, and we actually don't know what happened to that Ark of the Covenant that they stole. And it wasn't until a famous archaeologist in 1981 named Indiana Jones rediscovered it. So we have it now. I can't remember what museum he puts it in, but... You can take that off. <laughs> so the Babylonians come. They steal everything. And this is, friends, the darkest moment in Israel's history. They've lost everything. And it's into this moment that God sends a prophet called Jeremiah to begin a prophetic tradition of hope that Haggai's gonna pick up. You might recognize this verse, Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 10 says, for thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. Friends, this isn't just a bumper sticker or a nice t-shirt. This is a promise of God in the middle of a moment when every circumstance looks so bleak. And I can't help but think maybe this morning some of us feel like every circumstance in our life is pointing to doom and gloom. Can I say, friends, God still has promises for us. God still has a hope for you. And, and Jeremiah brings them up. He connects them to the bigger uh, story that's going on. And so what happens is after, so Assyria took over and then the Babylonians took over and then the Persians, it's a lot of drama in the ancient world, okay? I guess there's probably a lot of drama in today's world too, now that I say that. People get mad at each other and they fight. So the Persians come, they take over the Babylonian empire and Cyrus is the king of Persia and he tells the exiles, he says, you can go home. The 70 years are up in 539. He says, you can go back and you can rebuild uh, the temple and you can rebuild Jerusalem. And so what he does is he sends this little football shaped thing um, to the far corners of the empire. And we have a picture of that. And, that, and it looks uh, so nice and high quality because I took that on my iPhone, okay? Uh, Morgan and I, we went on our honeymoon to London and like most couples on their honeymoon, we went to a ton of museums. Um, and I really wanted to go to the British Museum to get this picture, and we're, we're still working through that. Thanks, babe, for that. So, it's a picture of the Cyrus Cylinder, okay? <laughs> Sorry, this is a nerd moment. So, Cyrus Cylinder is actually, this is like a real thing that, that Cyrus sent to the far corners of his empire, telling the, the Jewish exiles that they could go home. And what's written on it is something like what we have in 2 Chronicles 36. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Remember the southern kingdom of Judah. And any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. So they go home. And this is now the period that we are entering into. So this is the period, if we have that list of books, Ezra and Nehemiah tells this story. And Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. That's why I have it on one line. Uh, then Haggai 
Zechariah and Malachi speak into this era. And I put Esther in parentheses because Esther, like Daniel, is another story written within exile. So Esther takes place within the Persian Empire and not within Judah. And just another quick side note, Cyrus tells the Jews that they can go home. And so it's the southern kingdom of Judah that returns. That's why in the New Testament, um, we don't hear about Israelites anymore. We just hear about Jews. Okay, does that make sense? I've always wondered that, and that's why. So there you go. Just a little history tidbit. But this is where we are in the story. Ezra is the priest who's going to come and rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is the governmental leader, the kingly figure who's going to come and rebuild the walls. And they gather the people together, and they go home, and they start to rebuild from the ruins. And we have this story in Ezra chapter 3, and Haggai is going to speak into this direct moment. Okay, so if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see Haggai is mentioned a lot because he's the prophet. So if you want kind of the story of Haggai, you read Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Haggai itself is what he actually says. So in order to talk about what he says, uh, we have to talk about the history around it. Does that make sense? How many of you guys think context is a good thing when reading the Bible? So so here's what Haggai, or here's what happens in Ezra that sets up um, Haggai whole prophetic ministry. It says in chapter 3, verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel, and they sang responsively, saying, uh, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel." For all the people responded with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But hear this, in verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundation, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard um, far away. And so there's this juxtaposition of great joy with great sorrow. And it's this moment that has been building up at this point for more than 70 years. This is two generations, parents promising to their kids, uh, the echo of Jeremiah's promise of hope ringing in their ears, having been passed down at the dinner table. And they get to this moment, and it's been so built up, and it's not what they thought it would be. We might call this disillusionment. Friends, have you ever gotten to something that you've been waiting for and it's just not what you thought it would be? Gotten into a vocational role that felt like your dream job and as you're going through the motions day to day, it's like, man, this just isn't as awesome as I thought it would be. This isn't fulfilling the deepest longings in my heart. When you, in marriage and kids and family or or maybe a single life that's longer than you thought it would be. Friends, where has disillusionment started to set in? I want to suggest maybe for some of us even it's, if we're really honest, it's our spiritual life. And if we look at our hearts and our connection with God, it's like, man, five years in, 10 years into following Jesus, this just isn't what I thought it would be. Is there anyone in here who's maybe That's kind of a crass way to say the old people, but we're all a little bit old sometimes. And is there anyone in here that's saying, you know what? The faith of my youth isn't the faith that I'm experiencing today. If I'm honest, I feel a little bit disillusioned. 
with God, the church, people in my life. It's into this moment that Haggai has a message of hope. And here's what he says in, chapter, in verse four, chapter one, verse four. He says, and, and by the way, it's a challenging word. I just want to preface this. He's not like, aw, cute. He, he gives a challenge, okay? And this is the challenge. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, lies in ruins? So the people have stopped building the temple. They had that moment and they just kind of give up, okay? Um, and he says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. Um, and then he goes on, and in verse 9, he says, You've looked for much, and lo, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, while you hurry off to build your own houses. So these people have let disillusionment and all of the parts of disillusionment, cynicism, the hard heart, the loss of hope, turn into like this individualism, this introspection. They stop building God's house and they start taking care of their own house. And Haggai's message is like, hey, look, it's not going well for you. And he talks about, and I just want us to even hear this challenge. He talks about the ways that the Lord is kind of bringing some divine discipline into the situation and kind of letting the grace run up in their life. And that might sound intense. Like, why would the Lord do that? Um, but I, I think actually of the words of Jesus that says, seek first my kingdom and everything else will be added to you. And I don't know about you, but when I start to take my eyes off of God and the storyline that he's writing and start to get over-consumed, uh, let's say, I mean, my wife can attest about maybe our budget. That's when the grace of the Lord can feel like it lifts in my life and anxiety and depression and the hardness of heart starts to set in. Or when I take my eyes off of God's plan for my future and start to plan out every minute detail and take it into my own hands, man, it, it stops going well for me in my heart. And I can get cynical and disillusioned and then that can crystallize. And before I know it, I've just disconnected from God and I'm kind of living my own life and not really following Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, this is like a real, this is like a Monday morning thing for me, okay? <laughs> just to be honest. And I think it's really real for a lot of us. And so Haggai in, in chapter two, verse four, um, brings a message and he says this. He says, yet now take courage. O Zerubbabel says the Lord, take courage. All you people of the land, says the Lord, work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. Okay, do you hear this? He reminds them of what God's done in the past in Egypt to give them hope for the future, which is a message all in its own. And, and Caroline did preach on some of those themes last week. He reminds them of what God did in the past to give them hope for the future. And he gets them to lift their eyes off of their circumstance and reconnect with that big storyline. He reminds them of the covenant, the, the exodus in Egypt and says, hey, there's, there's a bigger storyline that God's writing in your life. There's a bigger future. In verse six, he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with splendor. Someone say splendor. 
That's a good word. I actually put it up there in the British version because it has a U in there and it just makes it longer and better. Okay, splendor, okay? Uh, which might also be translated glory. Come on, can someone say glory? Sorry, I feel a little bit uh, Pentecostal this morning. That could also be translated, okay, beauty, glory, beauty, splendor of this house will be greater um, it will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor, beauty, glory of this house will be greater than the former. And I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai says, hey, remember the storyline, remember the past, and remember the future. Where we're going is better than where we are. And I think there's a message here for the body of Christ today um, Because if you think about, I'm going to kind of go forward in this story. Now, we went backwards and talked about the history. Now, forward is what's going to happen is they're going to build something. They're going to listen to Haggai. Haggai is one of the prophets that the people actually do listen to. And they rebuild the temple, and it's going to become known as the second temple. Um, So the the era in which Jesus lived is called Second Temple Judaism, okay? Which you might not need to know for my message, but in case you want to know that for yourself. Second Temple Judaism is like the official era because they built the second temple, Judaism, kingdom of Judah. And there's kind of this sense within Israel, even when the temple's done, that it isn't quite fulfilling, It isn't quite what was promised, which leads the New Testament authors, when they're writing the New Testament, to think, hey, maybe God had something bigger in mind. And they start to read passages like Haggai chapter 2. We might say messianically or like with Jesus glasses on and say, hey, maybe Jesus is the fulfillment of what's going on here. Maybe Jesus is is the latter glory that's better than the former glory. And so that, and we're actually gonna, um, we're in a series in John that we're gonna pick up in the fall. And this is a verse from John, just to kind of connect some of these themes here. So in John um, chapter two, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And he's talking about the temple that Haggai's exhorting the people to build. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, this temple's been under construction for 46 years. (laughs) Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the, the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus becomes the temple. Jesus is the temple. He doesn't become that. He is the temple. And he becomes, uh, for the New Testament authors, this place where heaven and earth meet, this place where the presence and beauty of God can dwell. Um, And then Paul is going to write in 2 Corinthians about, now, more than just Jesus being the temple, we, as the body of Christ, are the temple. And we become the place where the beauty and glory and presence of God can dwell. And I mean, this isn't necessarily in my message, but can we just think about that for a second? That the God of the universe who created galaxies, who created you and me, who knit us together in our mother's womb, doesn't reside in a building. He actually chooses our physical bodies to be his own. Like, have you ever like waked up and like, thank you God that I'm not like, dead today because the fire of a billion suns is blazing on the inside of me. I mean, this is wild, okay? And I think sometimes we just get 
so used to thinking about God in our heads. And it's like, this is crazy, okay? And the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. And then more than that, in Revelation, Revelation is kind of the last act. It's where we're going. And it closes the picture of temple, not just as a building, but any place where the presence, beauty, and glory of God dwell. And I want to read us Revelation 7, 9, because I want to do what Haggai does. And I want to call us to the future call us to where we're going, to lift our eyes off of our circumstances and onto the storyline of God. Because friends, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of letting news headlines dictate my emotional circumstances. Friends, we as the people of God do not listen, well, we listen to the news because it's real. Okay, we're not gonna be like weird about it, but that shouldn't be the primary thing that is the Lord of our heart and our emotions. Jesus is the Lord of our heart and our emotions. And he's not surprised by anything that goes on in this earth because he knows where he's taking us. And where he's taking us is Revelation chapter uh, seven, verse nine, and it says this, after this, I looked And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, can I suggest that this is the vision that every minor prophet is pointing to? This is the vision that Genesis 1 is pointing, but we don't have time to go into that. Just the minor prophets bringing together worship and justice. The picture is this, a unified multi-ethnic church where the oppressors are humbled and brought low at the feet of Jesus and the oppressed are dignified and there's equal standing. There's beautiful diversity at the feet of Jesus. This is perfect justice and it's perfect worship as they gaze at Jesus. And I can, can I suggest for a minute, friends, when we, friends, we're going to stand there on that day. Like we're going to actually be there. And, and, I, and, and I, I just want to suggest that in that moment, we're not going to feel forced to worship. It's going to be our great joy because of the beauty of Jesus. That's what Revelation is about. It's about the beauty of Jesus. It's about his hair that's wide and his eyes of fire. And I use the word beauty on purpose because that's the word that Haggai uses. He says, it's going to be splendorous. Is that right? Splendorous. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. And this is where we're going. And friends, I even want to suggest when we get uh, over worried or over anxious about what's going on in our world, in our personal lives, can we remember that Jesus isn't surprised by anything that's happening? Jesus isn't overwhelmed or worried because Jesus knows where he's taking us. And it's going to be a church that's unified. Friends, can we have hope that the church can be unified because of Jesus's perfect leadership in the days to come? And and, and we're going to be freely worshiping in love with Jesus. And I want to suggest he's not going to force us to love him in that day. He is so good at leading our hearts. We're going to be there and we're going to be freely offering him worship and affection and devotion because we're going to say on that day, hey, I was about to give up in 2022, but then I saw you bring me to this place. You got my heart back in love with you. You unified the church and here we are. We love you. 
That wasn't on my notes, but I just, it's real, guys, <laughs> Revelation 7, 9. Um, but in the messy middle, when they feel like giving up, Haggai's message is this. He says, take courage and build. Bring wood, build this house. I did skip over. I mean, our task in this act that we're in is to pray like Jesus told us to pray that heaven would come to earth. So we have a responsibility to cultivate justice on this earth, to bring Revelation 7, 9 here. We have a responsibility to cultivate worship and beauty on this earth. And so that's, and that's really Haggai's message to the people of Judah. He says, take wood and build what's to come. Build the second temple. Build for the beauty, for the glory, for the justice. Bring wood. Build the house. And I just want to ask this morning, what's the house that we're building? What's the place for God's beauty and glory and presence to dwell? And I've got a couple practical suggestions I'm going to offer in a second. But the other question I have is, what's the, what's the wood? What's the habit or practice that we have that cultivates hope, that cultivates beauty in our life? And so I, w- I want to offer uh, three suggestions. Um, I'm trying to decide if the band should come up. That'd be nice. That sounds nice. Music behind my words. The band can come up. All right. <clears throat> three, ho- three, three, three areas we're called to build and three areas we want hope and three areas that we might be presently experiencing disillusionment. And the first one is this. I want to call us as a church, Grace Midtown, to, to have hope for our vocation. Our vocation, the thing that we do from nine to five, whether that's a a job in the workplace, our dream job, or something that feels maybe in between for us, or maybe it's to cultivate a family or cultivate a a single life. How many of you know singleness is a, it's not just like an unfortunate situation. It's like a, a, a calling and a thing to be cultivated for the season that you're in it. And, and I think the temptation when we're building our vocations as a place for the presence, the glory, the beauty of God to dwell, to kind of build our own houses, so to speak, like the people in Haggai do, I think the temptation is to think about our vocations more as career decisions or things we do to get money than places that are contributing to the beauty and glory in God on this earth. And I think there's an invitation this morning. Maybe for some of us, we've lost hope for our jobs. It just feels like I'm never gonna make enough. I'm never gonna get to where I need to be. Maybe the invitation to bring wood is to just cultivate a practice of hearing God for your jobs, for our families, for our workplaces. When was the last time you asked the Holy Spirit, what should I do next? Rather than just kind of did the thing that made the most logical sense. I wanna suggest maybe that's a way we could cultivate beauty in our vocations. Number two is I want to call us to hope for our communities. Whether that's a house church or a spiritual family, I think there's a, a temptation. Maybe some of us are, have lost hope that we can have people in our life that truly see us and truly know us. And, and I think obviously there, there's a couple ways that we can be tempted to sort of build our own house and stop building God's house and community and hurt and trauma is absolutely one of them. And I, I wanna honor that if that's your story. But I, I think there's also something that can creep in and it's just this idealization of a perfect community, maybe in a belief that a perfect community is somewhere else. 
And I just wanna, I just have a message. If you've lost hope in the area of community and and we're kind of laying aside for a second, um, maybe hurt or pain, but I just wanna suggest the perfect community is the one that you're in. And the grass, you might've heard that saying, the grass is greener where you water it. And I wanna suggest that maybe bringing wood in the season, cultivating hope in less than perfect community, because no, no community is actually perfect, might just look like showing up again and bringing food and trying again, showing up and trying again. And the third area um, to cultivate hope is this hope. And this is a hard one to preach, so, but hope for the church. And it's a hard one to preach just because of, I mean, I don't know if anyone's like opened up social media lately, okay? It's a hard one to preach because th- this is a divided time in the history of the church. And, and I think the temptation for some of us is to build our own houses to give up on the body of Christ and say, I'm just going to do this thing my way. I don't want to associate with this group or that group. And friends, I, I just think that there, there's a message to have hope for the church because Jesus has hope for the church. And Jesus isn't looking at the church saying, man, these are the right people who I like and these are the wrong people that I don't like. He's looking at the church saying, hey, you can do it. And I'm gonna get you to this place of unity and justice and worship. And, and I've recently been convicted by the Lord, like, Lord, I don't wanna give up on the church because you haven't given up on the church. And maybe there's an invitation this morning to say, hey, I don't like a lot of people in the body of Christ, but Jesus, I love you. And if you want to associate with his people, then Lord, here I am. You know, I wasn't, I'm just gonna, I know that the band's up here, but I mean, friends, God always shows up in the darkest moments in history. He just really does. Like, I don't know, I I was about to say, does anybody? And I realize it's probably not common, but read about revival history for fun, okay? I'm realizing maybe that's just my thing. Maybe some of you do, but um, friends, this is like, like I like reading Christian histories of revival, meaning a period of time where God supernaturally breaks in. And Christian histories of revival are fun because they tell like the inside stories. They tell the stories of Azusa Street where they, there's, there's, you, can talk, you can listen to people who say, I grew up in the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. And I remember as a kid playing in the piles of wheelchairs that people left behind at meetings because they got healed. And I, I, stories about the Welsh Revival in 1906 in Wales, stories of when they, they'd start church and the presence of God would fill the town and people would fall on their faces weeping in the streets. Anyway, those are Christian histories of revival. Secular histories of revival are awesome to read because they like aren't trying to like poof up your emotions. They just tell you the facts. And I was reading one about the Second Great Awakening, and, and this this writer was saying that the two the Second Great Awakening went from 1790 to 1840, and they were just 
wild, it's a move of the Holy Spirit that spread all across the Eastern and the Southern United States. Um, and, and people just met Jesus. They came awake to God in crazy ways. Um, and it led all the way uh, to England with William Wilberforce actually abolishing the slave trade in the Atlantic. Like there's like real documentable proof where William Wilberforce was a part of this awakening. And this, this historian was saying the two things that were a predictor of a move of God in the second great awakening were number one, communities experiencing economic difficulty. Is anyone just doing awesome in their finances right now? They're just doing great stuff. Communities experiencing economic difficulty. And number two is the after effects of the cholera pandemic. And, uh, and I forgot to even set this up, but I think we can kind of think like, man, this is just such a unique time in history. Like it's never been this bad. Um, I wanted to put up this quote from Voltaire, a famous French philosopher. Um, he actually said this. Um, can we put those, those quotes from Voltaire? Cause I can't find it in my notes. Cause well, I have a lot of notes. So no, it's not that one. Um, <clears throat> he said 100, I'll, I'll just read it. I found it. He said in 1776, he said 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is in a museum. And he said, we are living in the twilight of Christianity. This is the intellectual elite, a French philosopher. And the irony of that is 50 years after he said that the Bible wouldn't be looked anywhere other than a museum, uh, the French Bible Society actually bought his house and turned it into a Bible distribution center. <laughs> But he said, we're living in the twilight of Christianity. And he said this on the cusp of the second great awakening where God was about to move hearts and change the church. So can we, can we just stand up together? I just wanna pray. Can we pray before the band sings? And man, you can sing over me. I just want to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing in this room. So friends, I just want to invite, if you feel hopeless this morning, if you feel disillusioned, I, I actually believe that God can touch hearts even right now. So just with the posture of expectation, maybe close your eyes. Maybe if you want to even, I don't want to force anything. It's completely up to you, but put your hands out in front of you like you're going to receive a gift. And I just sense Yeah, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I just get these two pictures that I want to pray for. Um, number one is just this picture of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're going from a place that was comfortable, Jerusalem, to a new place, Emmaus. They didn't know where they were going. And Jesus showed up and they didn't even recognize it. But after they get to where they're going, he breaks bread and they realize that their hearts were burning within them. And I just feel like maybe there's some people, you feel like you're on a journey. There, there's the faith of your childhood, the faith you knew. And it's like, man, where are we going? Where am I going? Where, where's my relationship with God? And maybe in the disillusionment of it all, we've disconnected from that burning heart, that love for Jesus. And I just sense, maybe there's an invitation this morning. Again, you don't have to, but if you want to, just say, Lord, I want my heart to burn again. Lord, I'm sorry for cynicism that might've crept in in my heart. 
for disillusionment that's given way to just straight up giving up. And kind of the picture I got, this is the second picture this week. I'm new to the South, so I'm new to like that. What's it called? Like, is it called kudzu? Is that what we call it? That just thing that, wow, it just grows everywhere. Like, I, 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 it started to kind of go through my fence and I didn't cut it in time. And then it just completely overgrew my fence. And so I spent this week like with my shears, like bugs raining down on me as I'm having to cut it back. I'm like, why didn't I just get it? Like the first little shoot I saw on my fence. I just feel like for some of us, we've let cynicism and disillusionment, we didn't kind of see it when it happened. And maybe we're like five years in, a feeling like we're ready to give up on God, ready to give up on the church. And, and again, I, I don't want to force anything, but I just feel like there's a, a tender invitation from God to, in the words of Haggai, take courage and hope again. So can we do this? I'm gonna invite the band to sing and we don't do this very often here, but I just really sense that if you want it, God can light a fire in your heart again. So if you, I wanna invite you, if you want to, to just come down to the front or if it gets too crowded or whatever, just put your hand on your heart. But here's what I wanna say, cynicism and disillusionment can feel like they're in our heads. And I know for me, one way to get out of my head and into my heart is just to engage my body. Like guys, we're not just brains or we're like whole people. And so sometimes I'll lift my hands, not because I'm like feeling the goosebumps, but because I'm like, God, I want the truth to, to get out of my head and into my heart. And so I just wanna say, man, for some of you, maybe this looks like lifting your hands. Maybe it looks like literally coming down to the front to say, Lord, I wanna give up my cynicism and I want, I want your fire to burn in my heart again. So if that's you, and maybe you're nervous about it, I don't know. We don't do this here, but hey, why not? So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Would you throw fire on our sacrifice this morning? Would you awaken hearts again for the disillusioned, the burnt out, the burned out? Would you light a fire in our hearts? Make us hope for you again. Yeah, let's sing this morning. And if again, if you want, just come down as your action to say, Lord, here I am. Light a fire in my heart again.